Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Dr. Zia Abdullah, Biomass Laboratory Program Manager at the U.S. Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL. Dr. Abdullah is a mechanical engineer with extensive experience and accomplishments in thermochemically and biochemically converting biomass to fuels and chemicals. His experience includes more than 25 years of research and development in biomass conversion, as well as problem solving, new product development, business development, and project management. Earlier this year, I came across an article by Dr. Abdullah on the U.S. Department of Energy's website about accelerating the production and use of sustainable aviation fuels. I think that's a topic that we haven't yet touched on here on Resources Radio, but we're going to give it a little bit more attention today. And so Dr. Abdullah and I will be talking about what goes into sustainable aviation fuels, and I, I mean that quite literally, we're going to be talking about biofeedstocks, as well as the emissions profiles and scalability of these fuels. And I guess I just wanted to note, you know, there's this rumor that cars running on certain biofuels give off the smell of french fries while operating. So uh, let's find out what our future flights are going to smell like, shall we? Well, with apologies for that rather odd french fry comment. (laughs) Stay with us. Dr. Abdullah, thank you so much for joining me today on Resources Radio. It's really nice to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation to be on this podcast and the opportunity to talk about uh, NREL's program on sustainable aviation fuels. Great. Well, I have to say, uh, I'm on a roll, personally, having really fascinating conversations here on Resources Radio with physical scientists like yourself or engineers. And so um, I'm really excited to sort of hear a little bit more about your engineering background and how you came to focus on biomass and biofuels in your own career. Uh, My interest in Biomass and biofuels uh, actually started very early in my career. After my PhD, I joined Warehouser Company in Seattle, Washington. Uh, Warehouser is one of the largest private landowners in the U.S. And uh, as Warehouser employees, we were always challenged to look for new opportunities for biomass because they grow so much biomass on their lands. Other end, they were interested in opportunities other than in pulp paper and building products. That's what they do in their line of business. So that led to an interest in fuels and chemicals because those are large markets. And uh, here we are. (laughs) Here we are. Well, it's, again, as I said at the beginning, I think a little novel for us here on Resources Radio to be talking about sustainable aviation fuels. And so one thing that I I noticed in your article or a sentence that jumped out at me is, this part's in quotes, when we talk about decarbonizing the aviation sector, increasing supplies of sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF, is often at the center of the discussion. So I want to ask about this. This might seem like kind of a silly question, but I guess I want to ask Why is that the case? Why is uh, sustainable aviation fuel so central to the discussion? And I guess a parallel question is, are there other decarbonization options available for aviation? Or are we really talking about kind of less carbon intensive liquid fuels? Are they really the only game in town for this sector? So if you look at commercial aviation and the the, uh, greenhouse gas or GHG emissions associated with commercial aviation, about 95% of the GHG emissions in commercial aviation actually are produced from medium and long haul flights. So if you are if you're flying from DC to LA, for example, th- those are the those are long haul flights, right? And regional aircrafts, which are flying, let's say, 100 miles or 
150 miles, 200 miles, they only produce about 5% of the emissions. So really, in order to make an impact, we have to go after these longer distance, long haul flights, right? And uh, for these airplanes, there's really no other option other than energy-dense uh, liquid fuels. So you may have uh, read and heard a lot about electrification and hydrogen and so on, powering airplanes. So these long-haul flights can really not be electrified because current battery technology is weight-limited. Batteries are very heavy. So if you were to take the energy content in the fuel tanks in an airplane and you would store that much energy in a battery, the battery would weigh about 30 times the weight of the fuel. Oof. Okay. If you if you use hydrogen and and you put that much energy in hydrogen, the hydrogen would, would require not only all the fuel tanks in the airplane, but half of the fuselage. So you wouldn't carry passengers, you'd be carrying hydrogen. So <laughs> hydrogen or batteries are not options. So really our only option are energy-dense liquid fuels. Okay. Well, that's great. And, and it's great to have such a kind of a fine point put on that and why this matters so much. So, um, all right, my next question for you then is, what is considered a sustainable aviation fuel? Um, what does sustainability mean here? What, what feedstocks are most common when we're talking about these sustainable fuels? So sustainability, actually, it's a, it's a very precise definition. So sustainable aviation fuel has been defined uh, by the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, and this is defined as a fuel that A, achieves net greenhouse gas emission reductions on a life cycle basis. B, it respects biodiversity, conservation, and ecosystems from where the feedstock is harvested. C, it contributes to local, social, and economic development. And D, this is really important, is that the source of the biomass for this fuel does not compete with food and water requirements for humanity. Okay. So then the question is, how do we make SAF and how do we do it, right? So SAF is converted actually by using renewable feedstock and to, to fuel molecules that are identical to conventional jet fuel, which is called jet A. And we use biology and catalytic conversions that are very similar to uh, those that are already used in refineries. The key difference here is that uh, in conventional refineries, crude oil is crude oil, it's very similar. But in biorefineries, the feedstocks can be very diverse. So the technologies we develop, uh, the key is that these are kind of funneling technologies. That means they take very diverse feedstock and make it into a very precise uh, uh, product called jet fuel. Hmm, interesting. What are some of the feedstocks that, are, uh, that these biorefineries are working with? So we can, uh, the technologies that we have developed actually in principle can pretty well take any renewable feedstock and convert it into sustainable aviation fuel. So you have uh, uh, woody biomass such as, uh, you know, um, uh, purpose-grown wood. You can have, uh, you know, beetle-infested biomass that is in the uh, in the West Coast that, that has to be gotten rid of because it causes forest fires, right? You can have herbaceous biomass that you can grow for the purpose of making fuel. You can have municipal solid wastes that are landfilled and you can even have wet waste such as sludges from farms, from food industry. You can have sludges from wastewater treatment plants that can all be converted to SAF. And of course, we shouldn't forget algae. 
and we shouldn't forget CO2. Now, the Oak Ridge National Lab, which is also a Department of Energy lab, has published a study called the Billion Ton Report. And what this study concludes is that the U.S. can sustainably produce over a billion tons of feedstock annually, and most of this feedstock can be converted to sustainable aviation fuel. Hmm. Wow. And so how has the use, maybe I should say the production and use, but certainly the use of sustainable aviation fuels, how has that grown in recent years? Maybe you can give us a flavor of kind of how much is in use now, and also some sense of what the trajectory looks like. You mentioned that there's quite a bit of potential, but do you see that translating into into use as well? So at present, uh, actually, we don't make a lot of fuel. We make about four and a half million gallons uh, in, in the U.S., and most of this is produced through a process called HEFA, which stands for Hydrotreatment of Esters and Fatty Acids. And the feedstock for this are vegetable oils or waste oils or fats and greases from uh, animal rendering operations as feed. So this process is relatively straightforward, and refineries can convert that into, into fuel. So currently, uh, sustainable aviation fuel is being produced uh, by World Energy in their refinery in Paramount, California. That's in uh, near Los Angeles. And uh, Neste also imports sustainable aviation fuel into California from Singapore. Jivo has a production facility in Texas. Okay. Now, the Biden administration actually has, has directed industry and the federal government agencies through an executive order, and this was in last September, uh, to work together to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from commercial aviation by 20% by 2030 and completely decarbonize aviation by 2050. So in response to that, there was a memorandum of understanding between the Department of Energy, Department of Transport, USDA, and FAA that formalized these greenhouse gas reductions into gallons of fuel, right? And what this came up to was 3 billion gallon uh, sustainable aviation fuel production by 2030 and 35 billion gallons by 2050. So this is called the Sustainable Aviation Fuel Grand Challenge, and we are all very excited about this and very motivated to work on it. Okay, that's great. And sorry, how much are we producing now in terms of that gallon equivalent? Four and a half million. So you can imagine that we have to go from four and a half million today to three billion in eight years. Right. So there's... There's a lot of growth needed, it sounds like. So that's a great lead-in, actually, to the next question I have, which is um, what sort of strategies is the research community, whether it's at NREL, within the broader academic community, or within industry or other players, what sort of strategies is that community employing to really help expand that supply uh, in in the kind of time frame that you've been talking about? So the first uh, pillar of the strategy is compatibility of fuel, right? So airplanes that are flying today will still likely be flying in 2030. And airplanes which are being sold today will most likely be flying in 2050, right? So what this means is that the sustainable aviation fuel that we make must be absolutely identical from a molecular perspective to jet A fuel that these airplanes use today uh, so that the current uh, fleet can use it safely, right? I mean, as as we all agree that safety is number one 
uh, and there, there cannot be any compromises with respect to safety. And fuel is a big part of safety. So we have to make sure that the fuel we make must be 100% identical to Jet A and must be 100% dropped in. Okay. And uh, so that's number one. Second is feedstock. So uh, as I said before, US already has the capability to make enough feedstock, but it's very diverse. So the, the challenge is that how do you develop technologies and biorefineries that take this very diverse feedstock and make it into a very homogeneous, very precise fuel. And the, so that's part of our strategy. And how do we do it? We do it through coalitions. So that means that national labs, universities, industry, we all work together very actively. We work across agencies, so the DOE, USDA, FAA, NASA, we are all working together, and then cross-industry. So that means that you, you have to work across the entire value chain from feedstock suppliers to people who gather feedstock and then refine it, right? And then very important partners are petroleum companies, right? Because they already know how to make the fuel and deliver it safely. And this is all done through public-private partnerships. Yeah, well, and it definitely strikes me that those public-private partnerships between, as you said, between agencies, between government and industry, I can see how they'd be really critical here in expanding the use of these fuels. And so maybe if I can ask you to say just a little bit more about the connections that NREL or these other institutions, government institutions, can you say a little bit more about the work you're doing with companies, either those responsible for you know, building and operating the planes um, or those producing and refining fuels? You're absolutely correct. So public-private partnerships are really very important. And actually, the Department of Energy recognizes this. And the Bioenergy Technologies Office, that's called BITO, in, that is an office in the Department of Energy, actually, now issues annual funding opportunity announcements. These are called FOAs. So what they do is they provide grants to industry basically to work with technology partners like national labs and other technology partners to very methodically reduce risk and scale up novel technologies to make sustainable aviation fuel. So the, 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 the Bioenergy Technologies Office is helping with these public-private partnerships. And I can give you a really good example of this uh, at NREL. Uh, NREL has a partnership with Alder Fuels. So Alder Fuels and DOE are jointly funding technologies to make sustainable aviation fuel from very broad feedstocks uh, ranging from woody biomass uh, to actually wet wastes, okay? And Alder is de-risking and scaling up these technologies. I can give you an ex another example that we have recently had with a company by the name of Sapphire Renewables. Uh, this company is working on producing sugars from corn store in the Midwest. And these sugars are then converted to ethanol through fermentation, and then the ethanol can be upgraded to sustainable aviation fuel in partnership with a company that was also uh, was uh, DOE funded, and the name of that company is Lanzatech. And so this was a company that uh, came out of research that was done at the Pacific Northwest National Lab uh, through DOE funding. So it's, uh, it's public-private partnerships are critical in success. Mm-hmm. So I just I wanted to follow up on one thing that you said earlier, and that was particularly about the goals that the Biden administration has set in terms of the amount of sustainable aviation fuels available. Uh, so you mentioned that there are kind of gallon level 
targets for 2030 and for 2050. Um, but I have I'm, in other conversations, you know, sometimes the administration has set price targets, for example, for say hydrogen or you know other other things where driving down the cost of those technologies is actually really critical to their adoption. So I guess I wanted to ask: Are there price targets in mind for these sustainable aviation fuels? Are they are they actually competitive right now? And the challenges are really about sort of scaling them up in terms of production. How do you see the economics of this playing out? I guess that's my question overall. I'll be very honest with you. If one does not take into account the cost of, uh, you know, the societal cost of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere leading to climate change, it would be very, very, very difficult for sustainable aviation fuel to compete with uh, fossil jet A. Uh, when you look at fossil jet A, you take crude oil, you take it out of the ground, you essentially distill it, and you make aviation fuel, and you sell it. If you make a biofuel, you have to go and grow biomass, harvest it, convert it uh, through much more complex processes, and then make fuel out of it. It will always be more expensive. So having said that, cost is still very important. So we understand that if we make fuel that where the cost is very high, we'll never meet the gallon targets, right? So, so in all of these technologies that we are developing, we strive to make fuels at the, you know, the lowest cost that we can. And uh, then uh, there is going to have to be some support from policy where um, airlines and other industries will be incentivized to use sustainable aviation fuel. So a very good example of policy is that, say, the LCFS in California. And it is actually the LCFS uh, because of which actually most of the sustainable aviation fuel right now is going to California because the airlines uh, find that they can they can take advantage of that and they can they can decarbonize their flights and uh, and and also get some benefit from LCFS. Uh, having said that, also the airlines are uh, very cognizant of their greenhouse the, of the greenhouse gas impact of their operations. So they are giving us a lot of leeway and they are incentivized and they, they want to work with us. And if the fuel is even a little bit more expensive, they are still they're still receptive to using the fuels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. That's really good to know. So I wanted to ask, so in your view, what are kind of the biggest challenges that the research community, whether that's at NREL or elsewhere, really faces in, in meeting these these um, lofty targets related to the use of these fuels. So what do you see as the kind of hurdles to overcome? So look, if, if we are at four and a half million gallons today and we have to get to three billion gallons in eight years, right? So that means we have to build production scale very quickly. We have to mobilize across the value chain. That means that for at least for 30 billion gallons, we have to make 600 million tons of feedstock okay, grow it and harvest it and process it. We have to develop new value chains. We have to have deal with diversity. We have to have new conversion pathways that that get approved, right? So this is really, we are starting a whole new industry in the US. And I think that this is really exciting because this will create a huge, huge, huge number of new jobs and help to the GDP of the US in a way that's beneficial to our climate. So I'm really, it's it's not going to be easy. There's going to be a lot of work, but I think that there are the positives far outweigh the negatives. Mm-hmm. So it really does sound like as you as you said, this is kind of building a new industry. It's it's the mobilization of 
you know, the, the biochemical processes themselves combined with training a new workforce, combining with actually siting new facilities. Is that part of this as well? Um, are there different kind of refineries and things that will be needed for these fuels? I'm sorry, I'm making this sound terribly difficult when really <laughs> I just want to kind of emphasize, as you said, you know, there's there's an opportunity here too, particularly if the feedstocks, unlike some of the kind of global market challenges that we have with oil markets, for example, if these feedstocks are coming from the U.S., then this can really be kind of a an opportunity for the U.S. to, to home grow an industry. Is that the case? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the U.S. has the capability to grow grow this biomass. So, and I, I I personally think that this is going to ha- we are going to develop a new industry, but we have to actually take advantage of uh, people who are already in adjacent areas, right? So, for example, if you look at forest products companies of the farming community, right? We ha- we must engage with them to grow feedstock because they know how to do it. Right. And, and so we don't have to reinvent the wheel and make expensive mistakes. And then when we get on the other end and we look at fuel delivery to airports, right, safe production of finished fuel. Right. We have to engage the petroleum industry in that because they already know how to do it and they know how to do it safely and reliably. Right. So we are going to have to develop a new industry, but it has to be done in a way that we have to engage in a very positive and way existing um, uh, industries that 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 already work on the fossil side or on the farming side and and get them to buy in into this new vision and and be leaders and so there's a huge opportunity so even for the petroleum industry there are huge opportunities for for actually um, you know reinventing themselves right yeah well I do want to ask you sort of hearkening back to my my uh, somewhat odd comment at the beginning, but I am really curious. Um, so will passengers know if and when they're flying on planes that are fueled by sustainable aviation fuels? It sounds like probably not, because the whole goal is to develop that are fuels that are so similar in terms of their um, properties that they can you know, seamlessly plug into the existing aviation infrastructure that we have. But, but will it actually change the flying experience in any way? Are we going to smell French fries on board? I'm sorry to disappoint you, but there's going to be no wonderful aroma of French fries on your next flight. Uh, <laughs> the fuel is going to be identical to Jet A, so there'll be no changes at all. Fair but, enough. I think that's a very good trade. I uh, will have to settle for the smell of warm rolls coming from the, the back of the planes there, so <laughs> good to know. Okay. Well, Zia, this has been really, really interesting. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me. And I did want to close uh, with top of the stack. Um, perhaps you've heard of this type of feature before, but basically we're just looking for you to recommend any other good content that you might like. It can be on this topic. It can be of any medium. It could be on other topics. So something you'd want to share with our listeners as they continue to learn about these issues. So what's on the top of your stack? So one topic that we did not cover actually in our conversation that has a lot of interest in Europe and the interest in in the U.S. also is growing, and that is on the concept of e-fuels. That means to make fuels and products from actually CO2 from the atmosphere. So the idea is to capture CO2 from uh, industry point sources, you know, so if you have a fermentation plant or an industry waste gas stack, and uh, or you capture it 
directly from the air. So these are DAC facilities, direct air capture facilities, and then use renewable electricity from wind or solar to actually convert the CO2 through a process called reduction into uh, some intermediate chemical, then that can be further upgraded into a fuel, such as a sustainable aviation fuel or a chemical. And this would, so this is really important because in the future, you know, we use carbon in our economy all the time. Everything that we use from plastics to polymers to cars have carbon in them. So the idea is not to get rid of carbon. We would still use carbon, but we would create a sustainable circular carbon economy. That means that we would use carbon, still use carbon to make fuels and products, but recycle this carbon from the atmosphere and upgrade it rather than extracting the carbon like we do right now from the ground as crude oil and then just disposing of it in the atmosphere. So this is circular carbon economy is really important and maybe of interest to your listeners. And so then one question that people have with this is cost. How much would it would the final fuel cost or the chemical cost? And what should be the reasonable costs of capturing CO2 and electricity and using electricity to make these processes? What would the economics be? Are these processes ever going to be viable? Right. So I've been reading this really very interesting paper in volume 14 of this of the journal Energy and Environmental Science. And this was by my uh, colleagues here at NREL, who Ji uh, Huang, Gary Grimm, Josh Shidley, and Ling Tao. And the title of the paper is The Economic Outlook for Converting CO2 and Electrons to Molecules. So they've done it, uh, a very comprehensive uh, uh, analysis of many technologies and promising products that can be made in the near, mid, and long term. And this is really very exciting because what this study shows is that at a very contemporary cost of three cents a kilowatt hour for electricity and about $20 a ton for CO2, there can be several products that are, um, that are used in our society already that can be made from CO2. Okay, and, uh, and if that is the case, then what really excites me is this means that we are on the cusp of a circular carbon economy and very in, you know, hopefully in the near future, we'll be able to just use atmospheric carbon dioxide rather than having to pull carbon out from the ground. So this is a very, uh, I think that this is a very positive and a very optimistic way to look at the future. Fantastic. That's a great recommendation. Very substantive. And we'll make sure to put a link to that uh, on the on the website. So, well, this has been great. Thank you again for taking the time. This has been really interesting. And I hope we can stay in touch about these many developments that are obviously coming down the pipe. It's a pleasure talking to you, Kristen. Thank you very much for this opportunity. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. 
The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.